The following message is brought to you by George Lawson, Jr., pastor and Bible teacher with Baltimore Bible Church. We will be reading from the New American Standard Bible. For more information about this ministry, please visit us online at www.baltimorebiblechurch.org. So now let's open our Bibles and follow along with Pastor George as we loose the scriptures and let them speak. Why don't you take your Bibles uh, with me and open up to the book of Daniel. We're back in Daniel today as we uh, continue our, our walk through this uh, great prophecy of, of Daniel. We're still working our way through the prophecy, and uh, hopefully this week we'll be able to bring some more uh, clarity rather than any confusion. Uh, I know that last time we were in Daniel, it was a, a challenge. I had a small group uh, after the, the message in, in Daniel, and I had all kinds of questions about the 70s and the 7s, and can we go back over that again? And uh, so we will. <laughs> and uh, I know it's a lot to get our arms around, but it's our conviction at Baltimore Bible Church that every word of God matters. Now, we have a class that takes a journey through Scripture because we believe that every book of God matters from cover to cover. We teach expositionally verse by verse because we believe that every verse of Scripture matters. And sometimes we slow down in Scripture uh, and look at the Scriptures phrase by phrase and word by word because we believe that every word of God matters. The German reformer Martin Luther said that I study my Bible as I gather apples. First, I shake the whole tree that the ripest might fall. Then I shake each limb. And when I have shaken each limb, I shake each branch and every twig, and then I look under every leaf. And why would he do that? It's because the fruit of Bible study is well worth it, isn't it? And I understand that for some of you, this is like looking under the leaves, uh, but we're determined not to leave the branches without experiencing the, the fruit of it. So welcome to the apple orchard today. One commentator writes, no words ought to be necessary to enforce the importance of the subject and yet the neglect of the prophetic scriptures by those who profess to believe in all the scripture is proverbial. What he's saying is that amongst those that say that, you know, all of scripture matters, every word of God matters, that the, the, the neglect of the prophetic portions of scripture, you know, seems to be just widespread. Why would we neglect any portion of God's word? All scripture is inspired by God, profitable for teaching, for proof, for correction, for training in righteousness. And I firmly believe that there's profit in Daniel for all of us. And it's also something that is a prophet that can be understood. Daniel was given this prophecy in order that he might understand. That's what it says in chapter 9 and verse 25. He says, so you are to know and discern. That's the angel Gabriel as he brought it to Daniel, this prophecy to Daniel. He says, so you are to know and discern this. And then in verse 22, the angel Gabriel said, Oh, Daniel, I have now come forth to give you insight with understanding. And I know I'm not Gabriel, and you're not Daniel, but this is more than just a dismal swamp, as one commentator put it. So for a moment, let's see if we can pull back and just give you a larger perspective on what's happening here in Daniel before we jump in. So first of all, what's the historical context of Daniel. We've been walking through Daniel for a while. Let's just remind ourselves of what the historical context of Daniel is. Daniel's in exile in Babylon, and he's been personally burdened for his nation, Israel. In chapter 9, he's praying for their return and for the restoration of worship 
and the temple. He personally experienced the initial attack on Jerusalem, his homeland, back in 605 B.C. He was forcibly removed from his home. Daniel chapter 1 talks about that. Eight years later, in 597 B.C., he would have been aware of a second attack on Jerusalem when the king of Jerusalem was exiled, along with 10,000 Jewish people, their leaders, skilled laborers, soldiers, all taken. Second Kings 24 and 14 speaks about that. And then in 586 B.C., Daniel would have heard about Jerusalem being under siege. The walls torn down. The city was ruined. The temple of God was burned to the ground. Second Kings 25 and verse 9 speaks about that. And all of this is happening in Jerusalem while Daniel is serving as a government official in Babylon. And Daniel is crushed by the news that he hears about his homeland. And back in chapter 9 and verse 19, he's praying to the Lord. He says, oh, Lord, hear. Oh, Lord, forgive. Oh, Lord, listen, take action. But listen to the reason that he's asking God to, to take action for the sake of Jerusalem. Why does he bring this request? What gives him the, the, the confidence to bring this request before the Lord? Look at verse 19. Listen to the reason. For your own sake, oh my God, do not delay, because your city and your people are called by your name. Daniel understood that his prayer for Israel was somehow connected to God's name and God's glory. He says this prayer is not about himself, but it's, it's for your sake, Oh God, that I'm asking these things. But why would God's name be attached to Israel any more than any other nation of the world? Look back at verse 4, chapter 9, where Daniel says, I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed and said, Alas, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps his what? Covenant. He keeps his covenant. Why, why is the name of God and the glory of God attached to the nation of Israel? It's because God made a covenant with the people of Israel and concerning this land and God is faithful to keep his word. And why is that important for us to understand today? Because in the same way that we can count on God being faithful to fulfill his promises to Israel, we can also count on God being faithful to fulfill his promises with us. And there's a wonderful parallel between the promises given to Israel and the promises that we receive in the gospel because the same faithfulness of God upholds his promises. And just like Israel was a people called by God's name, today we are a people called by God's name. His name is on us. 1 John chapter 3 and verse 1 says, See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us, that we would be called children of God. We're called by his name. 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 10, For you were once not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And why don't we ever have to worry about being cast out of the people of God? It's because God is faithful to keep his promises. 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 24 says, Faithful is he who calls you, and he also will bring it to pass. And that's a comfort, isn't it? To know that if you belong to God, that you don't have to be concerned that somehow something that I've done has taken me beyond the limits of God's grace. We sang it earlier. It's a, a love that will not let us go. Have you ever felt like you're at the limit of God's forgiveness? You know, that God was just done with you as if God was saying, you know, don't come to me anymore with that same sorrowful confession. I've heard that one time too many. Like, this is it. I've had enough. If you're a true believer, you'll never have to worry about that. 
because you can always draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. Because if you confess your sins, the Bible says he is what? He is faithful. He is faithful and righteous or just to forgive you of your sins. And guess whose name is on you? God's name is on you. God's name is on you. And he will not let you go. And it's about the faithfulness of God. His name is on the line. And Daniel here in this specific context is praying according to the faithfulness of God. He's praying for national Israel to be returned to their city. And again, it's because God's name was on the line. God's name was on them. And that's the context of his prayer. That's the historical context. And just like God said, Israel would return after 70 years of being in captivity. There was a return to the land in 538 under Zerubbabel. There was a return under Ezra in 550, uh, 458 BC. Then the wall and the city were rebuilt under Nehemiah in 445 BC. And you may think, well, hey, that's, that's all that Daniel was praying for. I mean, that's the end of the prophecy. I, you know, we don't have to read anymore, do we? I mean, there's nothing else left here to see. But there is more to see. Why? Because even though there was a return, here's the problem. That city that was rebuilt after 70 years, it would be plucked up and overthrown again. And if you were to visit Jerusalem today, I know Nazarene just did, you'd find an excavation site on the the southwest side of the Temple Mount where there are remains from the stones that were thrown down from the Temple Mount in A.D. 70. 70 A.D., the, the Roman army led by Titus Vespasian destroyed the city, the temple, the temple was burned. The Roman army pushed the stones off the temple mount to break the stones into pieces to retrieve the gold on them. Not one stone was left upon another, just like Jesus said it would happen. And Jerusalem was overthrown. According to Josephus, over a million Jews were killed. The temple was leveled to the ground. Throughout the city, people were dying of hunger in large numbers, enduring unspeakable sufferings. Josephus goes on to say this, gaping with hunger like mad dogs, lawless gangs, went staggering and reeling through the streets, battering upon the doors like drunkards, so bewildered that they broke into the same house two or three times in an hour. Need drove the starving to gnaw at anything. Refuse, which even animals would reject, was collected and turned into food. In the end, they were eating belts and shoes and leather stripped off their shields. Tufts of withered grass were devoured and sold in little bundles. And then he tells this sad story about a mother of an infant child who was still nursing, and the mother seized him and cried, come be food for me, and killed her own son, roasted the body, ate half of it, and stored the rest in a safe place. That's what would happen in Jerusalem. Daniel's city, Daniel's people were going to find themselves in the very same position that they were before Daniel even prayed. And even today, Jerusalem can be characterized as a city of peace. It's on constant alert. Armed guards patrol the streets. You want to be able to characterize Jerusalem as a place where transgression has been finished, sin has come to an end, where everlasting righteousness has been brought all around the Temple Mount today and across the land. There are multiple thousands of people who reject their Messiah. The physical return of Israel to the land was not accompanied by a spiritual return to the land. And if you read the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, It's clear that from the earliest days of their return after 70 years of captivity, that Israel came in and brought their same sins with them. Why don't you flip back to Ezra chapter 9. Ezra chapter 9. Back in Ezra chapter 9, if you take a look at uh, verse 1, 
This is right after. Think about this. This is right after the temple has been finished. They've dedicated the temple with offerings. Here they are. They're finally back in the land after 70 years of captivity. And listen to what goes on in the same city. Ezra chapter 9, starting at verse 1. It says, Now when these things had been completed, the princes approached me, saying, The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands, according to their abominations, those of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race has intermingled with the peoples of the land. Indeed, the hands of the princes and the rulers have been foremost in this unfaithfulness, And then Ezra says, when I heard about this matter, I tore my garment and my robe, then I pulled some of the hair from my head and my beard, and I sat down appalled. He's just overcome with grief. Here we are, we're back in the land, and the people are going right back to what we left. He's just overcome with grief. He's pulling the hair out of his face. If you drop down to verse 10, he says, now, our God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments. Flip one book over to, to the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah, take a look at a verse, a chapter 13 of Nehemiah. Look at verse 15, chapter 13 and verse 15. Listen to this. Verse 15, it says, In those days I saw in Judah some who were treading wine presses on the Sabbath. And bringing in sacks of grain and loading them on donkeys as well as wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads. And they brought them into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. So I admonished them in the day they sold food. Also men of Tyre were living there who imported fish and all kinds of merchandise and sold them to the sons of Judah on the Sabbath, even in Jerusalem. Then I reprimanded the nobles of Judah and said to them, what is this evil thing you are doing by profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers do the same? So that our God brought on us and on this city all this trouble, yet you are adding to the wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. I mean, this is partly the reason why we got driven into exile in the first place. And here you are, you're right back at it again. Drop down to verse 23. It says, In those days I also saw that the Jews had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. As for their children, have spoken the language of Ashdod, that's the language of the Philistines, And none of them was able to speak the language of Judah, but the language of his own people. So I contended with them and cursed them and struck some of them and pulled out their hair. You know, Ezra pulls out his own hair. Nehemiah says, I'm pulling out your hair. (laughs) Pulls out their hair, made them swear by God. You shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. The, The physical return to the land did not mean that there was a spiritual return to the land. And even in this chapter of Daniel, back in Daniel chapter 9, describes what happened when the Messiah was introduced to Jerusalem hundreds of years later. In the same city of Jerusalem, what happened? The Messiah himself was cut off. The return to Jerusalem after seven years was a temporary arrangement. They got there physically, but they didn't get there spiritually. So what does God do in Daniel chapter 9? He says, Daniel, I know you've been praying for the return after seven years, but... Uh, that's not going to be it. <laughs> you know, what, what Jerusalem needs, what this people needs, is something that's, that's much greater. So what, what, what he does is he gives them this, this prophecy about the conclusion. Yeah, you'll get back in 70 years, but you'll need a, a full transformation. You'll need a, a physical, not just a physical restoration, but a spiritual restoration. 
And that's what he looks forward to in the future. You don't just need 70 years. You need 70 times seven years. And that's where the spiritual reformation would take place. And that's what Jeremiah chapter 31 speaks about. If you want to flip over to the book of uh, Jeremiah, I know we've turned there a number of times already, but it's just such a, such a wonderful prophecy here in Jeremiah 31. Because God made promises here to national Israel. And his promise was that they would not be cast off. Look at chapter 31, look at verse 35. Verse 35, chapter 31, it says, Thus says the Lord who gives the sun for light by day and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar, the Lord of hosts is his name. If this fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord, then the offspring of Israel also will cease from being a nation before me forever. For thus says the Lord, if the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth searched out below, then I will also cast off the offspring of Israel for all that they have done, declares the Lord. What God is saying is that uh, even though you've sinned and you've sinned greatly against me, I have a love that will not let you go. And in spite of what they've done, he also gives them promises. And he gives promises even regarding the city. Look down at verse 38, verse 38 of the same chapter. It says, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when the city will be rebuilt for the Lord from the tower of Hananel, that's on the northeast, to the corner gate, that's the northwest. The measuring line will go out farther straight ahead to the hill Garib, then it will turn to Goa, likely towards the west. And the whole valley of the dead bodies and of the ashes and all the fields, as far as the brook Kidron to the corner of the horse gate toward the east, all that's defiled there shall be holy to the Lord. And listen to this. It will not be plucked up or overthrown anymore forever. That's very specific language regarding the permanence of the city, down to the physical features of the hills and the valleys. And maybe this makes it simple. There has not been a time in history when the physical city was rebuilt like this and had not been plucked up and overthrown. It hasn't happened yet. So the city that Jeremiah is speaking about is a city that is to come. There's coming this time when God will fulfill his promises. And that's what Isaiah chapter 2 speaks about. In the last days, the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains and will be raised above the hills and all the nations will stream to it. And when will that happen? Glad you asked the question. We're back in Daniel chapter 9. Back in Daniel chapter 9. Hopefully you're buckled up because this is what Daniel's prophecy is going to be all about. When does this happen? How does this happen? Let's take a look at Daniel's prophecy again. Daniel chapter 9, starting at verse 24. It says, Seventy weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. Why don't you bow with me for a word of prayer? Heavenly Father, we come before you once again, and uh, Father, we do pray for your help. Oh, Lord, as we open up your word, I pray that you'd make these things clear to us. Uh, help us to profit from all of your word, Lord. This is such a, a rich, rich passage. And uh, Father, I pray that you'd use me as a weak instrument uh, to be a help, Lord, to your people, uh, to be a blessing uh, even today. In Jesus' name, we praise you and give you thanks. Amen. Start with a little bit of review in this passage. Last time we were here, we observed that the word decree, that there's this decree, 70 weeks have been decreed for your people. That word decree is speaking about a slice of time that's been cut out out of all human history to fulfill God's promises with 
Israel, national Israel. And Daniel's vision uh, gives a specific measure of time, 70 weeks. And we covered this the last time as well, that the word for weeks in verse 24 is the Hebrew word Shabuah. And that means a group of sevens, a group of sevens. And what the weeks are is groups of sevens. And it was just as easy for Israel to think about weeks of days as it was to think about weeks of years. And why was that? Because that's the kind of system that they lived in. They, they lived with a, a seven-day week. The Sabbath came every seven days. They lived with the cycle of sevens. The Sabbath year came every, every seven years. And then the year of Jubilee came every seven times seven years. You know, so the 50th year was the year of Jubilee. 49th year was the seventh Sabbath. And then they had a year after that that they had to depend on the Lord. So it would have been kind of just baked in. This is how they thought of time in groups of sevens. And one of the reasons that Israel was in captivity for 70 years is because they missed 70 of those seven-year cycles, which totals 490 years, 70 sevens. They missed 70 sevens, 490 years. Second Chronicles 36 and verse 21 speaks about that. And that helps us understand what verse 24 is getting at. When it says, 70 weeks have been decreed for your people, those 70 weeks are 70 weeks of years. And if you multiply 70 times 7, you get the number 490. That's where we get 490 years. Same amount of time that God's people forgot about him would be the same amount of time that he would use to bring them back to him. Same number of years that Israel forgot about him will be the same amount of years uh, that he would remember them. And that's the summary of the plan. That's in verse 24. But these 77s or 490 years were going to be broken up into three different segments. And that, again, is in the text itself. It's in the text. Verse 25 says that there will be a segment of seven sevens, seven weeks or 49 years. Verse 26 says there will be a segment of 62 sevens or 434 years. And then verse 27 says there will be a segment of one seven, which is seven years. First of all, there's going to be a period of seven sevens dedicated to the restoration of the city. Back in verse 25, it says, So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. And as a quick footnote, if you're reading from the ESV, Instead of saying, until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks, it places, uh, in placing these weeks together, it says, to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks, period. Then for 62 weeks, it will be built again. So it puts this hard break between seven and the 62. It looks at it like it's, it's separate. But we actually know that the 62 weeks goes with the Messiah, the, the weeks leading up to the Messiah. Why is that? If you look in verse 26, it says, then after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off. So the 62 weeks goes with the Messiah or the anointed one. So why does the ESV put this hard break after seven weeks? It's actually based on a Hebrew punctuation that doesn't show up in the original text. Uh, Paul Tanner in his commentary writes, one should be aware that this punctuation mark was not part of the original text, but only added centuries later. Furthermore, there are other explanations for the punctuation. So where you find in your ESV, there will be seven weeks, uh, period, and then it talks about the 62 weeks. It should be together. There will be seven weeks and 62 weeks, okay? Just wanted to give that uh, footnote there. So the question is, if 62 weeks belongs with the Messiah, then what does the seven weeks belong to? There's only one other option in the text, the seven weeks is leading up to the rebuilding 
of Jerusalem. The, the first group of seven refers to the building up of Jerusalem. You are to know and discern that from the issuing of the decree, to do what? To restore and rebuild Jerusalem. That's the only other event that's mentioned in verse 25. And as we mentioned last time that we were here, the date of the decree to rebuild Jerusalem was given by Artaxerxes. There were uh, decrees that were given earlier by uh, Darius. There was a decree by Cyrus. But the only decree uh, that was given to rebuild the city, to rebuild the, the city walls, uh, to reconstitute Jerusalem as its own independent city with fortification was the decree of Artaxerxes. And that's one of the best-known dates in ancient history. The 20th year of his reign was 445 B.C. So from that time, from that decree, it took seven sevens, or 49 years, to rebuild the city. According to Nehemiah 6.15, the wall was completed in 52 days. So why did it take 49 years to finish the rest of the city? Nehemiah 7 verse 4 says, Now the city was large and spacious, but the people in it were few, and the houses were not built. It took 49 years to complete the project on the inside. So just as the Lord said, it would take 49 years, the seven sevens, to rebuild the city. And this is where we move from the restoration of the city to the arrival of the Messiah. In verse 25, again, it says, So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. And this is one of the places where it is just so evident that God's unique glory is to tell the future. That's something that belongs to God because he controls the future. And the Bible tells us to be careful about how certain we are of our own future apart from the word of, of God. James chapter 4 and verse 13 says, Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we'll go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. You have all these plans about what you're going to do. Why does the Bible say you can't talk like that? Because you don't know what your life will be like tomorrow. <laughs> You're just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or do that. You don't even know if you're going to be alive to carry out your plans. You know, you make all these plans about what you're going to do. You better include the Lord in those plans. <laughs> it better be because the, if the will of God, if God allows, right, it's arrogant for us to imagine that we can speak anything into existence. I don't know if you've ever heard that before, <laughs> speaking things into existence. It doesn't matter what some TV preacher told you. You have no power to speak anything into existence. You don't even know if you'll be around. You can't speak anything into existence. There's this one teacher that says, if, uh, if uh, uh, praying for healing, if you're praying for healing with the faith-destroying words, if it be thy will, you're not planting seed, you're destroying the seed. What in the world are you talking about? Every time we pray, it's if the Lord wills. God, it's only by you that we live and do this and do that. It's only because of you. you the, you're the one who knows and ordains the future. You know, you wonder, what kind of Bible are these people reading? Let's say that you shouldn't pray if it be the Lord will. And when we think about the arrival of the Messiah... Jesus Christ, it's clear that God ordains. He knows and ordains the future down to the details. In Galatians chapter 4 and verse 4, it says, when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son. And it's worth pausing for a moment to recognize just how remarkable this prophetic word is. The book of Daniel 
has many critics who deny the possibility that the future could be predicted. You know, think about Daniel. He's predicting world-changing events all throughout his book. He's predicting the the fall of Babylon, the rise of Medo-Persia, the kingdom of Greece by name. He spoke about the career of Alexander the Great, of Antiochus Epiphanes. And those who don't believe in the supernatural, they, they argue that it's impossible that Daniel could have predicted all of those events. So they reason that Daniel has to be a forgery. You know, he actually spoke about these things after the fact and, and writes as if he, you know, knew all these things ahead of time. So they say that, you know, Daniel really wrote sometime between 175 and 164 BC, and it was written by somebody else, not Daniel. But then how do you handle a prophecy about the Messiah that wouldn't happen for another 200 years after that? <laughs> and nobody's saying that Daniel wrote after the Messiah was born. <laughs> nobody's saying that. No critic, this one writer goes on to say, no critic has ever dared to suggest a date for the book of Daniel as late as the birth of our Lord. Yet Daniel's prophecy of the 70 weeks predicts the time of the Messiah. This great prophecy is the impregnable rock upon which all naturalistic theories of prophecy are shattered. What does that mean? It means that our faith has been tested and it has not been found wanting. We, we have a, a sure word. You can trust in every promise of God's word. If you don't get anything else, get that, right? You can trust in every promise of God's word. His word is truth. And God included the details of Jesus's life in scripture before any of it happened so that our faith might be strengthened. And you should know that the details of Jesus's life were right on schedule. From his birth to his death to the very day that he was presented in Jerusalem, it was all sovereignly directed. And the most natural and literal explanation of this prophecy is a defense of that. Again, in verse 25, it speaks about these 62 weeks, you know, the seven weeks and the 62 weeks. And I know this is a little challenging, but, but I believe you can follow this with me, okay? I believe you can follow this with me. We've already mentioned that the weeks in this passage are weeks of years, groups of sevens, okay? So if you take seven weeks and multiply it by seven, you have the 49 years. If you take 62 weeks and multiply it by seven, you have the 434 years. And then if you add those years together, you get 483, okay? If you start with the decree of Artaxerxes in 445 BC and you move forward 483 years, guess which year you land at? It's 38 AD. And if you know your New Testament history, that's a problem because Jesus died in 33 AD. So how can we talk about the arrival of Messiah in 38 AD and it's off by five to six years? I mean, that doesn't make sense. But the Lord who ordains history is always right on time. And it's been pointed out that the calendars that we use today are not the same calendars that they used during Daniel's time. The calendars we use today are known as the Gregorian calendars. Our calendars have 365 days in the year. It's actually 365 and one quarter. And that's why every four years you have a, a leap year, right? That's not how the Jewish calendar worked. The Jewish calendar only had 360 days. It was between five to six days different. And five days isn't a lot unless you're talking about 483 years. <laughs> 483 years of five days. Guess what we're at between five and six years. So we're right at between 32 AD and 33 AD, the same time of the Messiah, right on time. And we don't have 
the time to get into all the ways that this is calculated, but I've read a number of scholars who've compared all the different calendars and believe that the days work out perfectly, perfectly aligned to be the day that Christ entered into Jerusalem in his triumphal entry, that it works out perfectly for that day. We won't get into all the calculations, but there are some reasons that you could argue from the text why that would make sense, okay? Number one, Daniel specifically mentions the holy city in verse 24 and the rebuilding of Jerusalem in verse 25. And we know that Jesus was associated with Jerusalem in his triumphal entry. We know his birth was in Bethlehem. His baptism was in the Jordan in the Judean wilderness. The majority of his ministry was where? Anybody remember? Galilee. The majority of his ministry wasn't in Jerusalem. He didn't spend that much time in Jerusalem. There's only a few occasions that we know of Jesus coming to Jerusalem. And the time of his public presentation would have been during his triumphal entry. That makes sense. The triumphal entry was also Jesus's first public presentation as the king, which is what Daniel references, his title as the Messiah, the prince, the ruler. He's the king. The word Messiah is the, it was a term for the, the king of Israel, the anointed one. The Hebrew term was Mashiach. The Greek term was Christos. It's where we get our word Christ from, Christ, Messiah, same, same word, the anointed one. And 2 Samuel chapter 7 speaks about the anointed one, the king. And if you were to walk through the Gospels, you'd see that Jesus places restrictions on people identifying him as the king, if you look throughout the Gospels, because it wasn't his time yet. It's not my time, guys. It's not my time. You know, it's not my time to be revealed. You know, when Mary came to Jesus for wine at the marriage feast, he says, my hour's not yet come. You know, what are you coming to me for? Jesus' brothers wanted him to present himself publicly in Jerusalem. And John 7, verse 8, Jesus says, go up to the feast yourselves. I do not go up to this feast because my time has not yet fully come. Peter identified Jesus as the Messiah. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. You are the Christos, the anointed one. You are the king. And Jesus says, yes, that's been revealed from my father in heaven, uh, but uh, don't tell anybody. <laughs> Strictly told his disciples not to tell anybody that he was the Christ. Don't, don't, don't let that spread around, calling me the king, calling me the Messiah. Don't, don't let, it, let that out. And he just kept on saying, it's not my time. It's not my hour. It's not my time. But then flip over to Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19. All this time he's been saying, don't don't say that. Keep that quiet. Keep that to yourselves. It's not for you to spread. But then look at Luke chapter 19, verse 38. Actually, I'll start at verse 37. As soon as he was approaching near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God joyfully, with a loud voice for all the miracles which they had seen. And what are they shouting? Shouting, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. Now they want them to be quiet. You know, before Jesus was telling them to be quiet. Now the the Pharisees, hey, teacher, rebuke your disciples. Don't let them say that. But Jesus answered, I tell you, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. Because why? It's my time. This is my time to be revealed as the king. I want everybody to know. Let them keep shouting. Let them tell everybody who the king is. Something's different about this day. It was a pivotal moment. 
Jesus also made reference to this day, the day of his entry into Jerusalem, as being Jerusalem's visitation. Flip over to, uh, actually you're already in, in Luke 19, look at verse 40, 41. It says, when he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, if you had known in this day, this day, what, what's different about this day? This is a day unlike any other day. If you had known in this day, even you, the things which, have, which make for peace, this could have been for peace. But now they have been hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side, and they will level you to the ground and your children within you, and they will not leave in you one stone upon another, because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. This is, this is the day. This, this was the day that you should have recognized. This is the day that I was being presented as the Messiah. This is the day that Daniel spoke about. This is the day that Zechariah spoke about. Zechariah 9, verse 9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is endowed, just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Jerusalem missed it. They missed the timing of it. They missed the signal of it. They missed the person of it. They missed the man of the hour. And Matthew 21, verse 10 says, When he entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred and said, Who is this? Here he is presenting himself as the king, and the city's like, who, who is this? They rejected him because they, he came in a way that they didn't expect him to. And I don't know, there might be somebody here. Have, have you rejected Jesus because he didn't come in the way that you expected him to? Maybe you're expecting the kingdom to come immediately like some of the disciples did. You know, I'm supposed to have all these benefits and blessings, you know, blessings on blessings. It's like, if I don't get that from Jesus, I'm not sure if I want to follow Jesus. You know, maybe it would be easier to follow Jesus if he rode in conquering and defeating on a war horse. But Jesus comes in humble and mounted on the foal of a donkey. But he's still the king. And he calls on his follower to pick up their cross. You know, don't, don't pick up your weapons to conquer. Pick up your cross and follow me. That's, that's what Christ calls us to do. But my point here is that there's good biblical reason to view this day, the day that Jesus wrote in, as that same day that Daniel was talking about. And another reason to see this as the day that Daniel was referring to is because on the following day, the clock stopped for Israel. There, there was this, this kind of steady marching of time all the way until the Messiah appeared. And then it's like the hands of time were stopped. It's like the clock stopped. And this is significant to point out. All the way up to this point, from the time that Israel return to Jerusalem all the way up to this time, God was working through the nation of Israel. That's, that's how God was working. He was working through the nation of Israel. They, they were to be God's kingdom of priests. You know, what, what does a, a priest do? He, he ministers on behalf of somebody else. Israel was to minister on behalf of the world, to, to, to bring the world to him, to be the light of the nations. And if you prayed, you prayed towards Jerusalem because that's where God made his name known. But on the next day after the triumphal entry, anybody remember what Jesus did? Cleansed the temple one last time, healed the people in the temple, and then he turned to the chief priests and scribes, and he says, therefore I say to you, Matthew 21, 43, therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing the fruit of it. You've had your time to produce the fruit and you haven't produced any fruit. 
He says, it's going to be taken away from you and given to a people producing the fruit of it. All up through this time, God has been working through you, working through you, working through you. You've been the primary mouthpiece. You've been the light of the nations. And now that's, that's over. I'm going to give it to a people producing the fruit. And it's like Jesus was saying, the, the clock has stopped on Israel. The clock has stopped. Temple in Jerusalem, where you would bring your sacrifice, uh, don't bother bringing a sacrifice there anymore. Why? The next day, Jesus said to the scribes and Pharisees, he called them hypocrites, and he says, behold, your house is being left to you desolate. It's empty. You know, the most important thing is not there anymore. You know, God's not there. It's over. The day before, he called the temple my house. The day after, he says, it's your house. <laughs> it's your house. It, it's, God's not here anymore. God's departed from this place. What made the temple a sacred place was the temple, was the, the presence of the Lord. And the rejection of Israel's king put a stop to the entire system. And God is no longer giving preference to people who pray towards Jerusalem. When Jennifer and I were in uh, Israel, we saw all these hundreds of people praying at the Wailing Wall, the Western Wall, you know, putting their little prayers in between the, the cracks in the walls, praying towards that place. God is not giving any special preference to anybody who's praying at the wall. Remember, we were flying back from Israel, and we saw a guy get up on the plane, and you know, he pulled out this kind of long rope with a box attached to it, and he started wrapping up his, his arms, put it around his head. You know, these boxes contain you know, verses of Scripture and you know, basically the, the old Jewish customs of you know, the tassels and the phylacteries. So he's putting this all around himself, you know, wrapping himself up, putting on his head, his arms, and then he's trying to figure out, okay, which direction is Jerusalem on this plane? As if God was going to give special attention to his prayers because he's facing towards Jerusalem. That time's over. There, there's no special significance to, to praying towards Jerusalem. John 4.21, Jesus told the woman at the well, Believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. And that time's now. <laughs> That time's now. It's not, we don't have to go to Jerusalem to get some special favor from God. And when Jesus came to Jerusalem, instead of receiving him as the king, they rejected him. And he didn't receive the fruit from the Jerusalem as he should have. If you flip over to, to Matthew 21, just want to show you this. Matthew 21. It's all connected, guys. <laughs> Matthew 21, look at verse 33. Listen to what Jesus says here in Matthew 21, 33. It says, listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard and put a wall around it, dug a wine press in it, built a tower, rented it out to vine growers, and went on a journey. Israel's pictured as the vineyard, many passages, and the servants of the vineyard are the prophets. And then you have these uh, vine growers who are the, the leaders of Israel. Verse 34 says, when the harvest time approached, he sent his slaves to the vine growers to receive his produce. These are the prophets coming to, the, coming to Israel, coming to the leaders of Israel. The vine growers took his slaves and beat one, killed another, stoned a third. Again, he sent another group of slaves, larger than the first, and they did the same thing to them. The leaders of Israel rejected the prophets and persecuted them. And then finally, who comes? The son comes. Verse 37, it says, But afterward he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the vine growers saw the son, they said among themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him 
and seize his inheritance. They took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. And that's exactly what Daniel said would happen. That after the 62 weeks, the Messiah would be cut off. Jesus died without tasting the fruit of his own vineyard. Israel was like the, the fig tree with leaves, but no fruit. John 1.11 says, He came to his own, that which belonged to him, and those who were his own did not receive him. And when he died, he died with nothing. That's what Daniel says. He was cut off and received nothing. Not even the clothes on his back because he was stripped of that too. He was cut off. The Hebrew word for cut off refers to a violent death. Always used of a violent death for the death penalty for a violent death. When Jesus was cut off, he had nothing. But in what sense? He was rejected by the very nation he was born to rule. Instead of crowning him, they crucified him. They kicked him out of his own vineyard. Like I said, it's like the clock stopped for Israel. The hands of time were held back. And God is not working today through that nation. He has given the kingdom to a people producing the fruit of that kingdom. And that people is the church. The instrument for salvation in the world today is the church which makes sense of the language used in 1 Peter chapter 2, which speaks of us as a chosen race, a holy royal priesthood, a holy nation. That's, that's the church. The language that was used for Israel is now used of the church. And we're producing the fruit of the kingdom. The book of Romans describes the Gentiles as being the wild olive branches that have been grafted in to this rich root of a cultivated olive tree. Flip over to Romans chapter 11 really quick. Romans chapter 11. Look at verse 17. Romans chapter 11, verse 17. It says, But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, speaking about you Gentiles, being a wild olive, were grafted in among them and became partaker with them of the rich root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. But if you are arrogant, remember that it is not you who supports the root, but the root who supports you. Just because the clock stopped for Israel doesn't mean that the time's run out for Israel because that final week still has to run its course. Did you, anybody remember how many weeks Daniel's prophecy was for? It's for 70. There's 70 weeks. We've only covered 69. There's still a future plan for Israel. Listen to what Romans goes on to say. Look at verse 24. For if you were cut off, from what is by nature a wild olive tree, and you were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, who are the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, so that you will not be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel. So not every Israelite and every Jewish person rejects the gospel. There's, there's still people who come to Christ, but they've been partially hardened until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved. Just as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my, what? This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Somebody, somebody help me out here. This, this removing ungodliness, taking away their sins. Have, have we heard language like this before somewhere? This is what Daniel 9 speaks about. Removing their sins, bringing in righteousness. This is speaking about a time in the future after the crucifixion of Christ, looking forward when Israel will finally have their sins removed. 
When Jesus came the first time, was ungodliness removed from Jacob? Were their sins taken away? The answer is no. And Romans is written after Jesus ascended to heaven and speaks about this yet future time. There's coming a day in the future where the hands of time will finally be released and the clock will start ticking again. And God is now going to work again through Israel as he has in the past. And for these last 2,000 years, the hands of time have been stopped on Israel. But after the fullness of the Gentiles have come in, the clock is going to start again for Israel. And there's a certain event that starts that clock ticking again, and we'll talk about that the next time we're in Daniel, okay? (laughs) But before we leave, let's think through some points of application, all right? Think about this with me. When Daniel prayed about Israel's return to Jerusalem, that prayer was answered after 70 years, but there was more work to do because it wasn't just about the physical return. It was about a spiritual return, and that's going to happen for the nation in the future. But today, there might be some of you who need to return spiritually. You know, maybe you show up physically to the church. You show up amongst the people of God. You're here physically. You're in the seats. But have you returned in your hearts? Have you returned spiritually? Because that's what God is after. God is after your heart. He doesn't just want to see a seat occupied. Physically, you know, amongst the people of God, he, he, he wants to see you being occupied with, with Christ in your hearts. Israel came back to the land, but they kicked out the Savior. And Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 12 says, Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil and unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. Make sure you're just not here physically. Make sure you're here spiritually. Make sure there's a spiritual restoration that's taken place. Also reminds us of the role of the church today. We are, as 1 Peter says, God's temple. That's that's who we are. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 5 says, You as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. That's that's your duty. Just as Israel in the past was to be the the light for the nations, you know, a a nation of priests, who do you think that is today? That's us. Are, Are you doing your job? Have you ever checked out your job description? What you're supposed to be today? You who are in the church are to be a light to the nations. You're to be the holy priesthood. Are you standing in the gap for a dying world? Is that what you're doing? You're the temple of God. How how, how are you doing with that? How are you doing with that? Is the temple clean? Is the temple holy? Are, Are we living as a holy priesthood? Is the assembly of God's people the light to the nations? When's the last time you shared the gospel with somebody? Are you being a light? The world shouldn't be turning to a physical temple, but it should be turning to the spiritual temple. It should be turning to us. 2 Corinthians 6.16 says, We are the temple of the living God. Just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. That's you. Number three, what kind of confidence should you have in a book that predicts the life of Jesus with such accuracy? (laughs) One commentator says this, Only an omniscient God could have foretold over 500 years in advance the very day on which the Messiah would ride into Jerusalem and present himself as the prince of Israel. And this is the the remarkable fulfillment that we have an unanswerable argument for the divine inspiration of the Bible. This was predicted 500 years in advance that Jesus would come, and he came right on time. And finally, what an example of God's love and kindness we have that even 
after Israel rejected her Lord and her king, that God would still have a plan for this nation. Even after the rejection, like I said, seven, seven weeks plus 62 weeks only adds up to 69. And God did not say after 69 weeks, the people of Israel will be cut off. That's not what he said. He said after 69 weeks, the Messiah would be cut off. Do you know, do you know what the Messiah took? He took the blow that Israel deserved. He was cut off. He took the blow that you deserve. You deserve to be cut off because of your rejection of the Messiah. But after the 69 weeks, it wasn't you who were cut off. It was the Messiah who was cut off. He is the one who died. He's the one who suffered and bled because he became our substitute. It's Jesus who was cut off. You know, if it were up to us, you know, the people who rejected us, they would be cut off, you know, never to rise from the ashes again. But that's not the heart of God. The same people who reject him, the same people who put Christ upon the cross, he says, I'm going to die for them. That's what Jesus does. And like I said, there's still this one week that's left. There's still one week on the clock. The clock's been stopped. You know, the buzzer went off. The clock was stopped. And it's just sitting there until the right time. And I'll give you a teaser for the next time we're in Daniel. The final week of Israel, the, the week of Jacob's trouble, it's not so that Israel will be destroyed. It's so that Israel would be saved. That's what the final week of Jacob is for. And Zechariah 12, verse 10, lets us know what will happen after that week. Zechariah 12, verse 10 says, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication so that they will look on me whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. That time's going to come and one day they will say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And like Jeremiah says, if this fixed order departs from me, declares the Lord, then the offspring of Israel will cease from being a nation before me forever. And that gives us the confidence that even for us, that there's a grace that's greater than our sins. If the Lord would pick up this rebellious nation of Israel, what does that say about us? <laughs> that the Lord isn't done with you. You know, you think you've sinned beyond the grace of God. It's like, oh, I can't, how can I come back to the Lord again after that time? And what does the, the Lord say? Come, right? There, there's mercy, there's grace. Come to the throne of grace with confidence to find mercy and grace in the time of need. Why? Because it wasn't you who were cut off. It was the Messiah who was cut off for you. Amen? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we come before you, Lord, and we're just so grateful for this word. Father, we're grateful for the truth that we have in Scripture, not just for Israel, but also for us. Now, Father, we're grateful that you don't cut us off because of our transgressions against you. Now, Father, that you haven't abandoned us, that you didn't leave us to ourselves, uh, but that uh, Jesus Christ was cut off, Lord, in our place, uh, that he's the, the one who took the, the brunt of the blows of your wrath uh, so that we could be forgiven. And because of that, there's, there's one week left for Israel and there's an eternity left for us. <laughs> Father, what a joy that is to think about. We glorify you. We praise you for your inerrant word. In Jesus' name, we praise you and give you thanks. Amen. You have been listening to George Lawson, Jr. of Baltimore Bible Church. To hear other messages or to find out about upcoming events and where we meet for weekly church services, 
please visit us online at www.baltimorebiblechurch.org. Baltimore Bible Church reserves all copyright protection under applicable law. Our copyright policy is available on our website and includes instructions for and limitations on duplicating all printed media, CDs, and digital files.